Today's scripture is found in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 33. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and took the two female servants. And he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. When Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob says, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, To find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, No, please, I have found favor in your sight. Then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please, accept my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. Thus he urged him, and he took it. Then Esau said, Let us journey on our way, and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are frail, and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me, and at the pace of the children, until I come to my Lord in Seir. So Esau said, Let me leave you with some of the people who are with me. But he said, What need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. But Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Succoth. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, and on his way from Padanaram, and he camped before the city, and from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he, brought for a hundred, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he pitched his tent. There he erected on the altar and called it El Elohi Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Let me just say, as we get started, though, I'm very happy to have uh, Jamie's parents, Lee and Carol Clark, in town for, for a visit. Um, these past couple of years has made me appreciate my family and my extended family all the more. You know, the whole uh, absence makes the heart grow fonder thing? It turns out that's actually really true. And I hope that I will never again take for granted any opportunity that I have for a face-to-face -face meeting with my parents or my siblings or my in-laws. And as far as in-laws go, I have great ones. I know that that is a, a blessing and that it's something that is somewhat rare. I'm not trying to brag or anything. I hope that you also have a wonderful relationship with your in-laws. It's rare, though, I think we can say. And let's just be honest, these past two years haven't just been tough on families because of you know, COVID restrictions that have not allowed us to get together. No, families have been torn apart because they couldn't agree on, on the COVID restrictions in the first place. You know, there's polarizing opinions that have even driven wedges in between the tightest bonds that humans can know, which is the bond between um, families. Families have been torn apart by, by these sorts of things. And 
a contentious election season and disagreements over social justice, all these things that we've encountered in the last couple of years only serve to throw gas on the fire. Expensive gas, I would add. But it's not like we need help creating conflict with other people. This side of the fall, all of our relationships are plagued by the possibility of deep problems. You know, strife and conflict are our default settings. We learned this actually in the earliest chapters of our study in Genesis. You'll remember back to Genesis chapter 3. This is right after Adam and Eve disobeyed and they were uh, basically they plunged the whole world into sin and all of us are now under the curse. Well, you'll remember that they were cursed in terms of their relationship. Part of the curse that comes on this earth is curse between a husband and his wife, a wife and her husband. So from that point forward, you know, relationships between the man and the woman were going to be characterized by competition and conflict. Similarly, we, we read in Genesis chapter 4 that sin has managed to, to drive a wedge between two brothers, Cain and Abel. Again, that, that ought to have been uh, one of the closest relationships possible, and yet sin is driving those two apart. The apple core hadn't even really started to brown before Cain hated his brother so much that he murdered him. And I don't want you to misunderstand me here. I'm not just describing kind of outlier situations here. I'm not just, you know, these aren't just a couple of bad apples, if you'll pardon the expression. The Apostle Paul can say in Titus chapter 3, verse 3, that before coming to Christ, we spent our days, quote, being hated by others and hating one another. That's how you could boil our, our lives down, just to one big, contentious, boiling conflict pot. And neither does our propensity for conflict disappear the day of our conversion. You know, as soon as we get saved, it's like, okay, no more conflict with people ever again. You know that's not true. And you also know, I think, that a, a good chunk of the New Testament was written to Christians to encourage us and to instruct us to forgive and to be reconciled one to another. Brother in Christ to brother in Christ, brothers and sisters even. We're not talking about pagans anymore. We're talking about in the context of a local church. So much strife still remains, and so we must be told to reconcile. But it's not just the New Testament that teaches us about reconciliation. Here, in Genesis chapter 33, I think we have a, a wonderful story that shows us something of, of the beauty that comes when relationships are restored and reconciled. Here we have two brothers twin brothers, no less, who haven't spoken to each other in 20 years. And the last time they were together, it was shaping up to be another Genesis 4 scenario. One brother had murderous intentions towards the other. So let's see how this is going to pan out. And uh, let's dive into the text here. And along the way, I want to point out a number of aspects of reconciliation that emerge from this passage. There's five in particular, and I'm going to give them to you um, as we come to them. I won't rattle these all off. So you'll, if you're taking notes, you'll have to pay a little bit more attention than you might be used to. <laughs> Sorry about that. Got to keep you on your toes, on the edge of your seats. The first is, let's see something of the preparation for reconciliation. Now as we come to verse 1, we read this. Esau was coming and 400 men with him. So Jacob divided the children, etc. 
Now, I certainly don't want to detract from the drama that the narrator is conveying. And he certainly is conveying lots of drama. You know, he uses words like, Behold! He wants us to, to get into the action. And he describes Esau's approach the same way you would describe uh, an approaching army. You remember that 400 men is the size of an army. So he's, he's setting up some really intense drama here. I don't want to take away from that great storytelling at all. But at the same time, you can't help but feel a little bit of deja vu. You know what that is? It's when you, you could swear that you have seen that thing or heard that exact same thing before. I mean, didn't we read uh, an identical thing back in chapter 32, verse 6 and 7? You can take a peek there. How is it that we haven't really made any real progress in this story in 25 verses? Well, don't worry. We have. We've made a lot of progress. The fact of the matter is that this story about Jacob's encounter with Esau is now resuming after a slight interruption. After verse 21, it's like we had one of those uh, old-timey TV announcements that said, we interrupt this broadcast to bring you an important announcement. I don't know if they don't have those on Netflix, so I don't know if many of you can relate to this, but some of you older folks certainly can relate to having a story a sitcom that you're watching being interrupted for an important announcement. And the important interruption was the passage that we looked at last week. It was the account of how the Lord graciously but firmly dealt with Jacob on the banks of the Jabbok one night. In fact, we saw that the Lord wrestled with Jacob and subdued him. He, he broke him the same way an experienced wrangler would, would tame a wild stallion. And Jacob has emerged from that encounter with the living God, a changed man. For starters, he's got a new name. He's no longer the heel grabber, but he's Israel, which means that he has striven with God and he's, he's lived to tell about it. Not only that, but he's changed physically. He has a permanent limp now from a dislocated hip. But all of those actually are, are, are somewhat superficial. The real change, the inward change, is where Jacob has learned to forsake his reliance on his supposed strength and his skill, and instead he's learned to embrace his weakness and to kind of lean into his total dependence on God who has promised to to be with him and to bless him. He's promised to be his God. And Jacob is now finally, after this important interruption, uh, trusting God to fulfill his promises and not in himself. As I say, this was a very important interruption to that regularly scheduled broadcast. And I'll, I'll have to cheat a little bit and fast forward, but take a look at chapter, ten, or, um, yeah, chapter 33 again, but look at verse 10. Jacob says to his brother, I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God. Now on one level, that's Jacob probably being a little over the top in terms of his deference to Esau. But on another level, it's clear from what he says there, that expression, all this talk about the face of Esau and the face of God, you you can, hopefully that's ringing some bells because that was in view back in chapter 32 in this interruption. There was all kinds of talk about the face of God and it's, it seems clear that in Jacob's mind, 
there is a real connection between his encounter with Esau and his encounter the night before with the living God. Here's the connection, and here's why the interruption to the story was so important and so necessary. It's because of this. Let me just distill it down into a sentence. Before you can deal properly in your relationships with your fellow man, you have to deal properly in your relationship with the Lord. Before you can have any real and lasting reconciliation with your adversaries, you have to first be reconciled to God. That's how it works. And I wonder, have you ever thought about this connection before? Have you ever wondered why you have so many broken relationships and so many unresolved conflicts in your life? Well, one of the reasons might be that you've never truly experienced what it means to be reconciled to God. One thinks along these lines of uh, James chapter 4, where James helps us to diagnose what might be going on when there is conflict abounding. You know this portion of Scripture well, but it goes like this. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You see, James is helping us to understand that we are... He wants us to really know what's going on when we are walking around like that, like pig pen. You know that Peanuts character? But instead of a, a, a cloud of dust and dirt, the cloud that is always around us is fighting and quarreling. And if he, James help, he's so insightful on this. He, he's saying if that's what's going on in your life, then the problem is not fundamentally with the other person. That's immediately where we go. You know, it's his fault. It's her fault. But no, James says, actually, the problem is with you. It's with your own passions and your own desires. In a word, your issue is your own idolatry. That's what's causing all of the problems. But idolatry is a theological issue. Okay, your, your biggest problem at that point is with God himself who you are currently in, in pursuing your passions and your desires and your thing, what you're doing is you're seeking to dethrone God so that you or, or that thing can be on the throne of your life. You've got, a, you've got a major conflict with God at that point, way before you have conflict with other people. Your conflict with your fellow man is actually just... Uh, a manifestation of the more fundamental conflict that you have with God. And think about this in Jacob's experience. You know, the conflicts that he had with Esau over the selling of the birthright, over the stealing of the blessing, think about those. At bottom, those are issues that Jacob has with God over whether God can be trusted to keep his promises. God had already said that he was going to bless Jacob, uh, the younger, over the older. And Jacob's issue, the reason that he tried to get all that done in the flesh, is because fundamentally he is disbelieving God's word and God's promises to him. His biggest issue is not with his brother. His biggest issue is with God. And back to James here, because James continues to help us. What is the solution when this is going on? Well, since conflict st with others stems from our great conflict with God, it's no wonder that we hear James providing these sorts of solutions in verses 7 to 10. This is James 4, 7 to 10. You can, you can just listen. Here's, here's the solution. 
Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Or you might say, if you'll permit me to paraphrase, cling to the Lord and refuse to let go until he blesses you. Do you see that Jacob's cage match with the Almighty God was necessary preparation for his reconciliation with his brother? This story could not have continued without that important interruption to the broadcast. Do you see? So we're resuming the story at this point, but we're only resuming it after this crucial, crucial development has taken place, and that is that Jacob has, the Lord has dealt graciously with Jacob and has resolved their issues. So let me just ask, what about you today? Is your life currently surrounded by the dust clouds of conflict with other people? Is it your desire today to be reconciled with someone? Maybe there's a very specific person that immediately comes to mind when I suggest that. Well, if so, that's, that's great. That's all very well and good. But perhaps you should consider that it might first be necessary for you to do business with God. You might very well need to humble yourself in his sight before he will exalt you in terms of your enemy. And this leads us actually very nicely to the second aspect of reconciliation. Let's see the the posture of reconciliation. And I've got two postures for you under this point, two H's. One for each party being reconciled. First, if you're the one that has done wrong, then you need to have the posture of humility. Humility. If you've made the the necessary preparations, and by that I mean what we just talked about, humbling yourself before the Lord, if you've done that, then it shouldn't be a difficult posture for you to strike before your fellow man. You're already in the right mindset of humbling yourself. And do you see this in Jacob? Look at verse 3. He said he went on before his wives and children. Now there's a slight change, just by way of aside. Before, before this encounter with God, the wives and the children are going first, and Jacob's in the back. But now he goes on before to confront this situation head on. He's got a new kind of confidence that comes from his encounter with the Lord. Anywho, he goes on before his wives and children, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near his brother. Now this is a very culture-laden kind of demonstration of humility. You know, he, uh, he's making himself as low as possible. He, he's basically getting himself into the ground, into the dust. Speaking of pig pen, you know, you, you want to, in humility, it's, it's a physical demonstration of a heart attitude. It's like you, you want to go as low as possible. And notice, too, that he does this seven times, seven being the number of completion, so Jacob really is making a profound statement of how he views himself compared to his brother. He is in dust and ashes. He is as low as possible on his face before his brother. Time seven. Not only do we see his humility with his posture, but also with his words. So look, in verse five, he refers to himself in reference to Esau as your servant. In verse 8, Jacob calls his brother, my Lord. So both his body language and his actual language convey the posture of humility where he is taking the lowly position. 
between the two parties. Now, even though we don't see in this exchange, uh, see this in this exchange, you have to understand this is not a complete picture of reconciliation. This is not everything that we could possibly say about the biblical material on re reconciling. But we, we understand that reconciliation also includes things like confession of sin and admission of guilt. It includes repentance, which is a, a turning away from sin. It, it includes a plea for forgiveness. All of these things. But those, any of those things and all of those things can only be done when you have that posture of humility. In our culture, we don't necessarily bow ourselves to the ground seven times and we don't call ourselves servant and the other person Lord. But our actions and our attitudes and our words ought to convey that same kind of humility. Now, as for the other party, the offended party, what should their posture be in reconciliation? And I think Esau is a wonderful example to us in all of this. He's a, kind of a strange figure to be an example. I mean, he, he is still outside of the promises. He's, he's far from God. You know, he, you'll notice in this text that he, he doesn't even mention God, certainly doesn't credit God for all that he has. And yet he stands as a wonderful example to us of this correct posture in reconciliation when you are the offended party. So what we see here, what we read, after all of this drama, after all of this uncertainty, after all this tension is building up, as he and his army of men are approaching, what is Esau's posture? Look at verse 4. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. Man, that is so beautiful. It's especially beautiful when you consider all of that build up, all of that tension, because Esau would have been in his rights to lash out and to be angry and to have murderous intention. And yet this is the exact opposite of that. He falls on his brother's neck and kisses him and hugs him and they, and they weep. And I wonder, does that remind you of anything? Yeah, I think it does. I think it reminds us of the father of the prodigal son. You remember this parable that Jesus told about a young man who asked for his inheritance and then squandered it on wild living. And eventually this guy is reduced to nothing. He's eating pig food. And after he comes to his senses, he, he went home, like Jacob, unsure of how he was going to be received. And he would have been happy just to be considered one of the servants of his father as just like one of the hired hands. But then we read that while he was still far off, his father ran to meet him and hugged him and kissed him and wept. In other words, when Jesus wanted to describe, you know, in, in the best way that he could, the, the, the emotions and the joy of full forgiveness and total reconciliation and restoration he could think of no better example than Esau. This is the proper posture in reconciliation. It's hugging. And that's putting it, that's your second H, by the way. And even at that, I think that's putting it far too mildly. Hugging doesn't quite convey just the raw emotion, the love, the acceptance, the forgiveness that's contained there. It's too mild. And mild is how I would describe the emotions that are typically involved whenever 
we reconcile with someone. I think we've probably been unduly influenced by our parents or our teachers or coaches who basically made us, you know, shake hands and be friends with the kids that we were having conflict with. You know, it's kind of something that you're forced to. You have to shake hands and be friends. And so we begrudgingly shook hands and somehow we got on with our lives. I'm afraid that we have a similarly lackluster response when, say, a brother or sister in Christ sins against us. And they come to us and they ask for, for our forgiveness. And we say, I forgive you, because basically the Lord makes us. Because that is the, the right answer. That's the theoretical, proper thing to do. Not necessarily because we want to. And we move on from that in, in perfunctory sort of fashion. You know, we're basically keeping that person as, at arm's length. On the surface, it's all fine. We're all smiles and everything. But there's no, there's no real warmth of relationship anymore. We don't, we, we don't trust that person. And we've figured out as, uh, uh, as, as Christians just how to do the right thing in theory, but not in terms of our heart and our emotions and our love. Do you understand that if I'm describing anything that might be accurate, do you understand how far of a cry that is from the raw emotions that we see in this text? The hugging, the kissing, the weeping that we see whenever there is true reconciliation. And not just here, but in the rest of, of Scripture. For example, we're very familiar with the passage uh, that's in Matthew chapter 18, right? We're, we're very well, we know this process that the Lord lays out for dealing with sin in the church, like the back of our hands. And this is exactly how we tend to think about it, you know, in, in cold theoretical terms. That we think of it as a process, and even that, that word makes us think, ugh, cold, distant, hands off. But this is not at all what that is. Matthew 18 is intensely personal. And its goal, its object, the thing that you're driving at the whole time is intensely personal. When, by the grace of God, the intended outcome is reached whether it's after step one or step two or step three or even step four, you, you can sense the joy that Jesus intends for us to have when he says, you've won your brother. You've won him. You know, this is passionate language. This is, the lang this is party language. You know, when reconciliation like that happens, it's time to kill the fatted calf. So what about that? You know, the next time someone humbly comes to you, confesses their sin, and asks for your forgiveness, what if you were to, as my southern in-laws say, hug their necks? What if you were to kiss them and weep with them and immediately invite them over to your house for a feast. I think that would be far more biblical than what we tend to do. Now the posture in reconciliation is humility on the part of the offender and hugging on the part of the offended. And let's see thirdly, I gotta, I gotta pick up the pace here a little bit. Let's see quickly the presence in reconciliation the presence by presence i mean the elaborate parade of gifts that esau met before he saw jacob you know the 550 animals in various droves that kept coming to him and no doubt esau had some idea what these were about because you know, Jacob's servants were given explicit instructions to convey 
the message that accompanied those presents. But just to be clear, he asks in verse 8, what do you mean by all of this company that I met? And Jacob makes no bones about his, his intention. He, he desired with it to find favor in the eyes of his brother. But there's more to it than that. I'm getting this from verse 10, where Jacob is insisting that Esau accept the gift. Okay, and Esau first refused this generous gift. And I don't know if that's kind of a cultural thing where, you know, you have to um, refuse. It, it, we we kind of have this dance too, like when two couples are out for dinner and the bill comes, the check comes, you know, and and one guy grabs for it and the other guy's like, no, 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 let me. And it's it's a whole song and dance that you have to do before. You have to refuse. You know, if, you, if the other guy grabbed for it and you're like, all right, yeah, great. Uh, that's not quite right. So you gotta put you got to put up some resistance. And I think in, in this culture, uh, same thing. Esau first refuses it, but Jacob is going to insist. And so he says, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from your hand, from my hand. Now, this isn't super clear in our English translations, but the word that is translated my present is the same word as blessing in verse 11. Jacob is saying, accept my blessing. And in this context, that is clearly a reference to the blessing that he stole from his brother. And so what we're talking about here, what Jacob is talking about here, is restitution. This is what Jacob is restoring to his brother, and he's restoring to his brother what he stole from him. So when we speak about you know, the presence in reconciliation, we're speaking about the fact that if you're going to have true biblical re reconciliation, it is necessary that you make right something that you have made wrong in terms of the other person. The classic case here, of course, is Zacchaeus, the tax collector. After he is confronted with Christ, he's radically converted, and he vows, he says, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. You see, true reconciliation implies full restitution. Now that word restitution has a lot of bad connotations these days. Whenever you talk about restitution or reparations, you know, people's backs get up. And understandably so, because whenever the world talks about reparations or social justice or equality or abuse or any, any such thing, what's going on there? Well, on the one hand, they're using, for the most part, good biblical terms, but they're seeking to execute these things in a way that is completely godless. So they're, they're trying to use biblical principles, but they're executing them in a totally worldly way. And so all, all of the... Um, all, all of their ideas about how best to deal with all of these things are so ham-handed. And they, they end up being not just um, unfeasible, but, but wrong. So, for example, there, there's a significant movement these days that believes that African Americans are due reparations for all of the wrongs done to them. And, and please understand me when I say this. The, the problem with that is not reparations or restitution, per se. I hope you can see, even from this passage, that restitution is a biblical principle for reconciliation. 
but you're foolish if you think that the world is going to execute a biblical principle in a godly way. So here's the godly way. Zacchaeus actually gives us the pattern. He says, if I have defrauded anyone of anything, do you see that there needs to be a, a one and a thing? He says, any one of anything. There's got to be those two elements. There needs, in other words, there needs to be a clearly defined victim and a clearly defined thing of which that person has been defrauded. But modern calls for reparations and restitution are very, very fuzzy about the who and the what, not to mention the how. But I don't want you to... The bad guy here is not in the idea of reparation or restitution. That actually is a a right inclination. Where there are victims and crimes, and when those are discernible and clear, there needs to be restitution. Young people, have you ever stolen from a sibling? I did. When I was in first grade, I stole a ring from my sister so that I could give it to Janine Harrison, a girl that I had a crush on. And she had bought me a G.I. Joe for Christmas, and I didn't have anything for her until I raided my sister's jewelry box. Now, was it enough for me just to say sorry to my sister? No, I needed to buy my sister a new ring. I wasn't about to ask Janine for it back. (laughs) So I had to save up quite a bit of allowance. Have you confessed to your sister in Christ that you slandered her? that you gossiped about her? Well, praise God. That, that's wonderful, especially if she is hugging and kissing and embracing you and forgiving you. That's a wonderful start. But reconciliation requires that you would also circle back to all those whom you slandered her to. to that you would do whatever is possible to restore and to repair her reputation and her relationships with other people. That's what reparation means. It means to repair. You've done the damage. You need as far as you can to fix it by God's grace. And so insofar as it depends on you, you need to make right what you have made wrong. And once again, we see Esau just accepting both the, the repentance and the restitution in the form of these presents. It's the blessing that had been stolen from him coming back to him. And it's a strong statement. The fact that Esau takes it is a strong statement that full reconciliation has taken place. Now, certainly we could say way more about that topic, but we've got to move on to see fourthly the perimeter in reconciliation. The perimeter in reconciliation. And by perimeter here, I mean boundary. How far should we go in reconciliation? This is actually the other side of this, the previous point. And under that previous point, we were considering what does reconciliation include? And now we're asking... What does reconciliation not include? There we were wondering, what does, if you're going to be truly reconciled, what does that entail? And now we're wondering, okay, if we're going to be truly reconciled, what, is that, what does that not entail for the relationship? And one answer that we get from the, uh, to that question, there could be, there's lots of them, but one of them that we get, we get from the example of Jacob and Esau. And it's this, that reconciliation does not mean being yoked together with unbelievers. So you wonder, like, how how much of the relationship should you restore? In this newly reconciled, restored relationship, how far can it go? 
And it's possible that it would go too far. In this case, to being yoked with an unbeliever. To be reconciled with someone does not entail that you weave your lives together entirely. There are still some necessary boundaries, and I generally don't use that word boundaries because you know, it's a term that belongs to the world of pop psychology, which I loathe, and it gets overused and underdefined all the time. But, so maybe it's best if I show you what I mean from the text. When their relationship is restored, Esau, in verse 12, suggests this. He says, let's, let's, let us journey on our way, and I will go ahead of you. And it's clear that Esau imagines that now that they're reconciled, they can live together. Esau is picturing that his brother and his brother's wives and children would, would journey with him back to Seir, and they could, all be like, they could all live happily ever after as one big happy family. And it's also clear that Esau believed that he would have the leadership position in such an arrangement. He says, let me go on ahead of you. But this is a boundary that Jacob cannot cross. His reconciliation with his brother is one thing, but he can't forget that he is uniquely chosen by God and that God has made very special promises to him and that God has specifically called him to go to a different land in a completely opposite direction. And to unite himself in this way to his brother would mean to repudiate God's call on his life. See what I'm getting at here? And so Jacob rebuffs his brother. Although, and this is so frustrating, he doesn't come right out and be honest about his real reasons. Yeah, he brings up true things like he's got young kids and baby animals and they can't travel very fast. But then when Esau comes back and says, yeah, but let me leave some of my people with you to, so that they can help you, Jacob rebuffs that also. And so Esau goes on his way and he's left with the distinct impression that Jacob is following behind him. And eventually he's going to catch up with him in Seir. But Jacob heads off in a different direction and he ends up settling in Succoth and Shechem. And that's classic Jacob. It's so frustrating. He, he, he has the right idea you know, he must not be yoked to his unbelieving brother. He can't be distracted away from the place that God has called him to go. But his execution is just despicable. He, he never gives Esau the real reason, and he leaves him with a false impression, and he ends up settling in a place that, yes, it's in the land of Canaan, but it falls far short of God's clear instruction to him to go to Bethel. And the result of Jacob's inconsistency here is going to be tragic. And if you don't believe me, make sure you come back next week. But the point here is that boundaries are important. As Christians, we're, we're called to be reconciled and insofar as it depends on us to live at peace with all people. But that doesn't mean that you have to marry just anyone. In the same way, you can, you can forgive and be reconciled to your overbearing mother, but reconciliation doesn't mean that she's freed up to once again run roughshod over you and your household. You, you can forgive your father for his grievous sin against you but that doesn't mean that you have to leave them alone with your kids. There's a perimeter to our reconciliation. And very quickly, let's turn to our fifth and final point, the praise for reconciliation. And I'll, I'll just give this to you real quickly. I appreciate your patience. Despite Jacob's inconsistency, I love how throughout this passage he is quick to give God 
all of the praise for all that God is and all that God has done for him. His testimony is, quote, God has dealt graciously with me. Furthermore, you can, you can hear his absolute contentment. He says, I have enough. Jacob's thankfulness and his acknowledgement of the Lord, these are fixed ideas in his mind, you can tell. And you can tell because they come out by habit in his language. And here's another habit of Jacob, just like it was a habit of his grandfather Abraham. That is the building of altars in praise and thanksgiving to God. And so we read in the last verse that as soon as he had purchased a piece of land in Shechem, he built an altar to the Lord and called it El Elohi Israel. In fact, Jacob builds an altar in the same area that his grandfather Abraham built the altar when he first entered this land that had been sworn to him. In Abraham's case and in Jacob's case, Building an altar in this kind of an area where you've just purchased a, a small plot of land, that's a powerful testimony. It's like planting a flag for the kingdom of God in pagan territory. And the name that Jacob gives to the altar means God, the God of Israel. What's Israel? Well, that's Jacob's new name. So this is intensely personal. He's taking on his new name and he's identifying God as his God. This is Jacob declaring in no uncertain terms that the Lord is the Lord of his life. And his existence, his family, his holdings, his reconciliation with his brother, all of it, all of it only really has one explanation. And that is that the one true and living God is his God. And he is true to his word. As we've been talking about today, he is faithful to all of his promises. And therefore, he is worthy of all of our praise and all of the glory. It's all gone to him. And I trust that as we go from this place today, that we would think and live and speak in a similar way. I pray that we would be people who are keen to reconcile with others, knowing that we have first been reconciled to God. I pray that we would be people of humility, that we would be quick to confess our sin and to consider others as more significant than ourselves. I pray that we would be zealous to, to make right anything that we in our sin have made wrong for another person. But at the same time, I, I, I trust that we would maintain proper boundaries and recognize God's distinct calling on our lives as Christians. And then, when all has been said and done, may God be glorified for all of his love and all of his faithfulness, for all of his provision and for all of the peace that he brings. Amen? Amen.